All right, let's try again. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 17 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may point uh, so that, sorry, uh, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all of you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may also that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for um, its effective work in our hearts. We thank you that it does not go out void, uh, but it returns. It doesn't return void, but that it accomplishes its purpose. God, we pray that it would accomplish its purpose in us today. God, that you would challenge us and encourage us with these, uh, these sweet words from your scripture. God, challenge us to um, cling to the cross when we're enduring whatever circumstance we're in. May we know that, that you have caused it or allowed it for our good. And we stand in the truth that you're working it out for our good, for we love you. God, be with us now as we look at this text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so a couple of questions for you to start out. Uh, why did Jesus come to die for us? <clears throat> our 
Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Perfect. Perfect answer. That's great. And the, the, the exact answer there is right that we're sinners. And the testimony of Scripture uh, hits us with that pretty clearly. We could go to the Romans road and follow the Scripture that says no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God. We've all turned aside to our own ways. Uh, we can look at Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, just as Jonathan put, all of us have uh, broken the Lord's commands and have, as such, a broken relationship with Him. We have said that our desires are better than the Lord's desires and have sought our hope in our desires rather than the Lord's desires, and thus we have sinned and, and, and really spurned His presence. Um, and Romans 6.23, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Um, the punishment for our sin is death. And Jesus came to die because he was taking on our punishment. And in Hebrews, we see that uh, the reason that Jesus comes is that we needed something better than had come before, right? The whole testimony of Hebrews thus far has said Jesus is greater than all these old covenant promises, all these old covenant sacrificial systems, all of these things. And we looked at that uh, a couple Sundays back and, and said Jesus is a better high priest and a better tent with better sacrifice of a better covenant with better promises. He's better. He is better than what had come before. And so there was purpose in him coming, and him specifically. Why, why couldn't someone else die for us? Because Jesus was the one sent for us. Perfect sacrifice once for all. And so you'll see on your little outlines there that I've got that phrase, Jesus is a better high priest, and I've got a little exercise for you. Um, <clears throat> what I want you to do is mark out all the betters, okay? Because we've learned what the betters are uh, over our time in Hebrews, um, so Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is the perfect high priest. Jesus is, is, the, better, uh, is the better high priest in a better tent. He's the better high priest in the heavenly tent. His better sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. His better covenant is the new covenant. And his better promises are eternal promises. So we know from looking at Hebrews this about Jesus, that Jesus is the perfect high priest in the heavenly tent with a once-for-all sacrifice of the new covenant with eternal promises. We see from the testimony of the Old Testament, and one of the reasons why we're in Hebrews is to find out this very truth. That Jesus has been shown from the Old Testament. As, as the preacher Apollos uh, was preaching to, uh, I think it was Corinth, it is said of him that he took the Old Testament and preached Christ from it. He showed that Christ was in the Old Testament. And this is what we've learned, that, that the high priest was insufficient and that Jesus was a better one. In fact, he was a perfect one. That the, heavenly, that the, the tabernacle, is, though it's beautiful and, and majestic and perfectly put together, there's a heavenly tent that it represents that is more perfect. And though the sacrifices demonstrate that there is a penalty for our sin and our brokenness, that, that we need to be restored to God, 
Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that doesn't have to be done over and over and over, once for all. We've seen that uh, Jeremiah testifies against uh, the old covenant people by saying, I'll create a new covenant. Or you have, you have disregarded my instruction, I'll create a new covenant. And it's a judgment against those that are walking under the old covenant, saying, uh, you guys have totally disregarded my, my uh, desires for you and my instructions for you. Therefore, I will, I will do a new thing. And that new thing is in the perfect high priest of Jesus. And those promises are not just for land and uh, succession of kingship and these sorts of things. The promises of the new covenant are eternal. And just like John had pointed out, that we would be restored to the presence of God by the sacrifice of Jesus. And, and that's why Jesus had to die for us, because he's the better way. He's the more perfect way. So a second question for us is this, and we'll answer this in this passage. Why did Jesus die the way he died? We know from Hebrews why he came to die and why he had to come to die for our sins and be restored to God the Father. Why did he die the way he died? I'm sure... Have all of you seen Passion of the Christ? Probably, yeah. I mean, it's a good demonstration of the gross nature of his persecution and his, ex- his execution. Jesus dies. I mean, why could, uh, could he not have just been, uh, had a, a clean death, you know, injection or... Uh, guillotine really quickly, or, you know, something quicker than a drawn-out, days-long torture and spitting and punching and crowns, uh, crowns of thorn on his head hanging from a splintered cross. Why such a torturous and disgusting and shameful death? Yeah, he did. He did. Exactly. He did. One of the reasons that, that he died, there, and there are a lot of reasons, there are probably other reasons that he died the way he did, uh, but one of the reasons that our passage points out is this, that we might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Part of the reason that Jesus endures such a bloody and gruesome and drawn-out, torturous death is, yes, that it shows how disgusting and awful our sin really is, but also it shows us the extent of his commitment to the will of God in his life and gives us a picture of of how we ought not go weary or faint-hearted. Why did he endure from such sinners, this hostility against himself, that we might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our author uh, is continuing to encourage his hearers to hold fast, and now to uh, and, and now he's encouraging them in that with the endurance of their Savior. He's demonstrated the greatness of Jesus and and why Jesus had to come, and why he, he was a better high priest and and a better uh, tent and so forth. But now he's showing them that that the endurance of our Savior speaks to us 
in, in a way that encourages us to hold fast despite any circumstance that we would face. His reason for dying the way he did was uh, partly that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted. And in this passage, what we see is <clears throat> the author um, encouraging these hearers to hold fast and to, to not grow weary and to not grow faint-hearted. And what I, what I see in this passage is him demonstrating what it takes for us to not grow weary and to not grow faint-hearted. Um, and I've, I've summarized it in our title, which is this, Disciplined Disciples. Uh, the, the way that we're going to run the race that's before us and fix our eyes on Jesus and see his endurance and apply it to our lives is to be <clears throat> disciplined disciples. We must become disciplined disciples and understand what that means. So first, we're going to look at verses 4 to 11 and talk about uh, the disciplined side of this. And second, we'll look at verses 12 to 17 and see the disciples' Uh, part of this. There's two little components that I want to walk through uh, this morning. First, disciplined. What does it mean to be disciplined? Uh, Discipline is not just about punishment. I think the first thing that we think about with discipline is how we punish our children or uh, or someone for breaking the law or or what have you. But discipline, the, the disciplining is not just about punishment. Punishment is a part of discipline a lot of times. You know, a lot of times punishment results from uh, your, your conception of how discipline should, should go forth. But discipline is not just about punishment. And often we think about it that way. We, we uh, flatten out those terms and, and sort of meld them together that discipline and punishment go hand in hand. But they're two different things. You see, one of the reasons that we know that discipline isn't just, uh, isn't just punishment is that we look at our context, right? For these people that are receiving this letter, uh, what he calls discipline for them is the persecution that they're enduring. How can, how can that be discipline? See, discipline is, um, is not just punishment. Discipline's, discipline is, is really about learning and growing. Uh, it's about someone that is in an authority over you, teaching you and helping you to learn and grow. Discipline sometimes allows learning through consequences. <clears throat> if you're a parent, you know this is the case. Uh, you will sometimes are fed up with giving punishment or uh, fed up with saying, no, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But you're like, okay, go ahead. <laughs> jump off the couch, let's see what happens, <laughs> right? You allow circumstance and consequence to teach for you, to be a teacher for you. And so discipline sometimes is simply allowing learning through consequence. In this case, again, their context is that their, quote, discipline is the persecution that they're facing for claiming the name of Christ. In this case, a positive action is equaling a negative consequence, that's, and that's not how we typically think of it. But for them, their positive action of claiming Christ and holding fast to Christ is resulting in a negative consequence. And our author calls this discipline. So we need to strengthen our understanding of what discipline is. And uh, if, we, if we say it is not punishment, 
alone, and that it's more about learning. What are the other components of discipline? And our passage today walks through that pretty clearly for us. First, um, the author uses uh, a passage here from Proverbs about discipline, and it's in verses 5 and 6. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. From that short passage, we learn a lot about what discipline is. First, discipline is significant. Discipline is significant. Um, His words in this are, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't take it lightly. There, There is something to what the Lord is doing when he allows you to be disciplined and when he allows discipline to occur in your life. It is significant. Part of its significance is in our identity with Christ itself. Uh, For these that are receiving this letter, they're feeling the suffering of Jesus in the very nature of claiming uh, lordship of Jesus in their lives. Discipline is significant in that that as we look back at at these who, uh, some who are martyred for their faith and some who today are even martyred for their faith and some who are persecuted in this way, it's not just about them, is it? It's often, it's often not about them. It's often about the present church around them and the future church beyond them. As we look back toward the great martyrs of faith, we are encouraged that they held fast, that even in, uh, in the uh, Colosseums of Rome, when they were brought out to be slaughtered for their faith, they stayed true to Christ and claimed him to the very end. <clears throat> Our author encourages us that, that the call of Jesus is, is one that is not, uh, and we've said it a, a ton of times here, is not just a, a get out of hell free card or, uh, I, okay, I've claimed Jesus and now I get to do whatever I want, that it's a full giving over of our lives. And, and as he says in verse four, he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What's the implication of that? That as we give our lives to Christ, it's not that we will definitely shed blood because of our uh, commitment to Christ, but it is that we would be willing to do so if it came to that. If it came to that in our circumstance, that we would say, yes, I choose Christ over everything else. In spite of the fact that you say, if I say this, then I'll be spared. I will still say Christ because I know his promises are eternal. <clears throat> and so discipline is significant. It, and it not only encourages uh, the church around you and not only identifies you with Christ, uh, but it encourages the church around you and the uh, church beyond you. It is significant. Um, one of the commentators that I was reading on this week spoke of the significance, the possible significance of discipline in our lives. Uh, his name's Raymond Brown, and he says uh, this. <clears throat> he says, God may well be saying something extremely important to us through our troubles. This is a long quote, so I apologize, but Uh, He may well be saying something extremely important to us through our troubles that we could not or would not easily receive if everything went well for us at all times. He may be calling us to renewed confidence in his providential care or to a fresh willingness to commit our entire life to him, whatever the outcome of our immediate difficulties, to a desire for God's will and not our own wishes, to a readiness to go through any experience if only it will make us more Christ-like in the end. 
discipline has significance in our life in terms of our sanctification and becoming more like Jesus and closer to him. And so when we look at the difficult circumstances around us, uh, we ought to know that this is significant in our lives and that that God may be allowing it for, for a very significant purpose that is beyond the comfort level that we're experiencing right now. It is significant. Discipline is not overwhelming. <clears throat> it's not overwhelming. The second phrase in this uh, verse, in, in verse 5, is, nor be weary when reproved by the Lord. Don't be weary when you're, appro- when you're, when you're reproved by the Lord. His discipline is not overwhelming. He has a promise to you that he will not give you more than you can endure. If you're in it, he's going to bring you through it. If he's brought you to it, he's going to bring you through it. That'll preach. That'll preach right there. Um, Discipline is not overwhelming. Uh, We know this from 1 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's a temptation for us... um, yeah, 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, I thought I had it over there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may not be able to, uh, that you may be able to endure it. The temptation for these that are hearing this message is very real. Uh, their, their temptation is to leave, right? To, to leave the faith that they have clinged to and go back to something more comfortable. There's a real temptation to not hold fast, to let go and, and, and move on from this experience. So the temptation to leave is real for these hearers and difficult to resist, but God has provided a way out. His discipline is never overwhelming. It's never meant to weary us. It is always significant and important for our instruction. Next, we see that discipline is loving. Discipline is loving. As we continue on in that passage, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline from the Lord. Any, any circumstance or situation that is coming your way that doesn't feel real good, that feels like sandpaper against you, um, is something that is good for you. And it is actually, in the end, loving. <clears throat> See, the fact is, you know, we know this, but it's not loving for me to allow my children to stick their fingers in electrical sockets, right? It's not a loving thing to do. If I know they're going to be electrocuted by putting their fingers in there, it is upon me, the, it is my, my instruction to tell them to not and help them to refrain from doing that. And sometimes it comes with a very stern no, or maybe a physical removal from the situation. Is that me being mean to them because I have physically removed them? No, it is loving. Discipline in that situation is proper, and often emphatic instruction is needed to help them avoid that behavior. It is loving to discipline. And part of the reason that it is so is that in our childlike state, and, and even now as we consider ourselves in that, um, we don't know everything. <laughs> We're ignorant of a lot of things. Uh, 
as, as we've seen in this passage, Jesus is the creator of all things, upholds the universe and even our lives. And we think we've got it all together, that we know every situation and every, every right choice that needs to be made. But we don't. And discipline keeps us from making choices uh, that we ought not make and for our good. Discipline is proper um, and, in, and sometimes emphatic instruction is needed. Uh, discipline is loving. It's a loving action. Next, discipline is respected. <clears throat> Verses 7 to 10, uh, the author uses this illustration of a father and the significance of a father in the life of a child. And it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." Discipline in the end is respected. In the short term, it it is very much not respected a lot of times. But when we grow and we look back and and see, oh, that there's a reason that I was treated that way by my father. It is respected. And the same is true uh, with our father in heaven. In the end, discipline is respected. Finally, discipline discipline bears fruit, verses 10 to 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So discipline isn't just about punishment. And, And often, again, that's how we associate it that discipline is a punishment. I must have done something wrong, and now I'm, I'm going to be punished for that. And that's not, it's just simply not the case. Many times, discipline is allowing, the allowing of circumstances to train our hearts and to train our understanding and train our learning about who God is and what he has done for us. It's significant, it's not overwhelming, it's loving, it's respected, and it bears fruit in our lives. And so as this uh, author is encouraging these hearers, he's saying, listen, I know this doesn't feel real good that all of Rome is against your belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and wants you to bow the knee to Caesar instead of him. It is good for you to hold fast, to have the discipline that knows that despite whatever circumstance comes my way to me or to my family, we will stand true to our confession and claim Christ as our Lord knowing that he is better, knowing that he is the perfect high priest in the heavenly tent with the once-for-all sacrifice of the new covenant with eternal promises. It takes discipline for us to understand that and to grow in our understanding of, of how good and faithful he is to us. And what he endured encourages us to stay true to that as well. The bloody, drawn-out, gruesome, disrespected death that he receives shows us the extent to which he endured for us, that we might understand the significance of our call to his lordship, 
So first, we ought to be disciplined. We ought to accept the discipline of our Lord and, and know that it is a loving action in our lives and that it's purposeful, that it is not meant to overwhelm. Besides enduring discipline, um, there are a few more things that disciples are marked by, and that's what we see in verses 12 to 17. Um, we see that we are to be disciplined disciples, and disciples look a particular way. Verses 12 to 17 again says this, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he, re- he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. These verses demonstrate to us what it is to be a disciple. At first, we see that disciples make straight paths. Verses 12 to 13 again, strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Disciples are looking for opportunities rather than worrying about opposition. Many times when we look around at our circumstances as people, we look at the big red flags that are, that are standing in our face that, you know, are, there's no way this is going to work because this is present or that is present, and I can't see past this particular obstacle that is in my way. And disciples don't worry about that. Uh, first of all, we, we know the Lord is working out all things for our good and that he's, uh, that he's Uh, faithful to us in our circumstances, that he brought us to the situation that we're in. And so our optimism isn't just a personality trait. It's rather a um, trusting that the Lord is faithful despite whatever circumstance that we're in. You know, we often lean one way or the other in terms of our personality, whether we're optimistic or pessimistic with situations. But as a disciple, we know that we are in the situation we're in by the sovereignty of God and his allowance of it in our lives. And so we know also that his discipline is not overwhelming, that he's provided a way out of every circumstance that we're in. And so, yes, though there may be real opposition and real situations that are real things that we should consider and and maybe even avoid or watch out for, a disciple makes straight paths. A disciple knows there is a straight path through this circumstance, that there is a way out that's been provided by the Lord. And so uh, we don't look at the opposition or worry about it. Rather, we look for the opportunities that are there for us to walk a straight path. Disciples make straight paths. Disciples strive for peace, verse 14 Strive for peace with everyone and for, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. A disciple is marked by a commitment to resolving conflict, uh, to not being at conflict with one another because we know uh, that, it, that it creates um, division among us. There's a real call to unity among disciples 
that any conflict that comes up ought to be resolved and that we ought to strive to resolve it whenever it is at hand. A disciple doesn't avoid conflict. A disciple runs to the conflict and says, okay, how can we resolve this? How can we find a way through this? How can we make this better? How can we restore unity among us? A disciple strives for peace, working to resolve conflict. A disciple strives for holiness, verses 14 and 16 to 17. 14 again, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And continuing in 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know, afterward he desired to inherit blessing, but was rejected and found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Strive for holiness. Disciples don't compromise on holiness, knowing that the comp- that compromise of that a compromise of confession will follow. The fact is, when we when we compromise on holiness, we're compromising on the lordship of Christ in our lives. We're saying, you know, it's okay if I do a little bit of this here uh, and sort of justify it because, well, I'm not doing that over there. And the the moment you let that foothold in your life, it just grows. <laughs> It grows and grows and grows until you're at a place where you say, you know what, this whole thing is sort of a burden. And maybe I'll just go back to where it was comfortable in the first place. What he's warning about through this whole, uh, this whole book has been that, that slow draw out of faith. Warning them that, the, that there is a point of no return, right? We, we re- recalled the story of the Israelites coming through Egypt and coming to the promised land, to the edge of the promised land, looking out on it, sending the spies in them, coming back and saying, eh, these guys are too big, right? Here is the God of the universe who has stepped down miraculously and brought you out of slavery and destroyed the armies of Pharaoh, provided food from heaven, and you get to the land that he promises you and you say, eh, these guys are too big. (laughs) There was a point of no return for them. They had seen the miraculous hand of God and gotten to the promise. And they lacked trust in their father. And they said, nah, we're just going to stay. We're going to go back to Egypt, maybe. Yeah, the same is true for Esau in this example. It says, he sold his birthright for a single meal. He said, I'm hungry. Yeah, take my birthright. I don't care. In that one step, he gave up all of his his inheritance, and there was no taking it back. Because once it had been stated from his father's lips, from Isaac's lips, that Jacob now is the heir, he couldn't take it back. It was done. It was given. And though he sought it with tears, he couldn't have it back. There's a point of no return. And we've talked about that some uh, in our context in knowing that, that there is a place where your heart is so hardened against God that you will not turn back. The good thing for us and the thing that we need to remember is that we don't know when that point is for anybody. We don't. But we should be urged and concerned that there is a point uh, where there is no turning back. Uh, That should challenge us to always fight to present the gospel, lay down the truth before those around us that we care so deeply about, knowing that we don't know if they're past the point of no return, but they could be. So we need to take every opportunity to say, this is the truth. You need to walk in it. 
We strive for holiness. We don't compromise on holiness knowing that that compromise of confession will follow. Disciples obtain the grace of God. Disciples obtain the grace of God. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. We know that when we let go of grace in our lives, we get bitter toward one another. When you allow grace to be removed from your relationships with one another, especially in the church, bitterness grows up. If I don't have grace with you, I'm just going to look at the deficiency as a deficiency and then have bitterness towards you because of your deficiency. That's not what God is calling us to. He's rather calling us to understand the full situation and give grace where there needs to be grace. And that's both ways in our relationships with one another. Disciples know that letting go of grace produces a root of bitterness. And what happens is every offense that comes against us is sort of tallied up in our minds and held against those with whom we've lost grace for. And so we need to let go of that tally, which is just old religion, plain and simple, and cling to the grace of God that all might obtain it. Because as we withhold grace from one another, we create bitterness in each other. We create unforgiveness and and conflict with each other. So see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. How does that happen? By giving it. By giving it to one another. The fact is, what we see here is that um, disciples look out for each other. That this isn't actually just personal advice for our relationships with God, but that it's corporate advice to us. See, the effects of discipline feel very personal and individual, but um, they're always confronted corporately. As you look at this passage and and listen to this passage, it's not just uh, advice for each individual to apply to themselves. It actually can't be applied just personally. I mean, listen to it again and think that this is a corporate instruction. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone. Can you do that personally? It involves other people, always. And for holiness without which no one will see the Lord is the concern about you alone or is it about other people? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Is that about you or about others? It's about others. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Is your sin personal or is it corporate? 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. See, the instruction to us in this is not about personal holiness. It's about corporate holiness. It's about corporate discipleship. It's not about being a disciplined disciple. It's about being disciplined disciples. Just as um, our discipline is significant because it doesn't just affect us, but those around us and others are encouraged by our faith and strength, so too our discipleship is about one another, about fighting this battle together, about leaning on one another in our faith in Christ. If we're going to run the race before us without becoming weary, we must be disciplined disciples. As we look at this, there's a few things to to just go with here. First, I think there's an instruction overall to us to fathers, right? I mean, um, as we read this, we're reminded of Ephesians 6, 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Our discipline ought not be overwhelming. It ought to be intentional and loving. I'm preaching to myself very much this week. <laughs> Truthfully. Our discipline ought not be overwhelming, but intentional and loving. Second, remember, all things work for the good. Our Father is a loving Father, and He's using all things to bear good fruit inside of us. His discipline is significant. It's not overwhelming. It's loving. It's respected, and it bears fruit in our lives. He's not allowing difficult circumstances in our lives because we have failed Him somehow. He is allowing difficult circumstances in our lives because He loves us so much. And he wants our hearts to be completely given over to him so that we would be able to say, just as as, as encouraged by the author here, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Are you willing in your heart to shed your blood for Christ at this moment? And a lot of times, I think a lot of us would probably say, I don't know. Or maybe emphatically, I'm not ready to die for my faith. Maybe we know that that, that's true, that if the time came and we were confronted with a decision, we might choose Caesar. And and so we ought to remember that this discipline from the Lord is is seeking to direct our hearts to the complete and full lordship of Christ. That he loves and cares for us, not just temporarily, not just to improve our lives on the earth here, though he certainly does that through his wisdom but rather that his promises are eternal. That they are beyond any circumstance we can endure. And the cool thing about this is that the reason we know we can endure it is because he's endured it for us. The reason he died the way he died was that we would not grow faint-hearted, that we would not grow weary, that we could fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We read that so lightly. He endured the cross. (laughs) Think of how 
significant that verse alone is, that phrase alone is. He endured the cross. Despising the shame. The meaning of that despising the shame is that he thought it a little thing, the shame of the cross. He thought it very little. He despised it. He, he thought it was nothing, thought nothing of the shame of the cross. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember that our God is a loving father and he uses all, he's using all things to bear good fruit in us. And finally, remember this, that God has us together on this journey of faith. We're not disciple islands that are just randomly associating. Rather, we are disciples who he is knitting together for the purpose of his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. If we're going to endure any hardship or circumstance that comes our way and trust that he is good and faithful, we have to be disciplined disciples standing together in the journey God has brought us to. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your cross. We thank you that it has shown us how much you have endured for us, that it encourages our weary and faint hearts. Thank you that your discipline is not overwhelming, that you allow it only at the level that we can handle it. Thank you that... that you believe we can handle much more than we think we can. And so, God, I pray that as disciples, we would not be overwhelmed by the situations and circumstances that are around us that so often loom large and shadows cast on our souls, but rather we would be disciples who know we are in it with purpose and that you have provided a path out, Lord, that you would make straight our paths, that we would um, stand firm and walk boldly forward in, in the direction you have for us. Well, lastly, thank you for Jesus who has endured the cross on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.